0: Have you ever wondered what makes the leaders we see today, the faces that you see on magazine covers, on social media? We read and we hear about what was built, how it was built, even who built it, but we rarely gain insight into how they were built. We see the final product, but what if we could see the original blueprint, the process, the design, the schematic? What if we could gain insight into the past with a focus on where we go from here? To hear how these leaders are pushing for a more just, a more equitable, a more inclusive future to understand how they see the challenges of today and tomorrow. Here you will find leaders turning success into significance. If you want to meet the leaders with a focus on doing well and a passion for doing good, you will find it here. Welcome to the Leaderboard. Welcome to another edition of The Leaderboard. I'm
1: Zach. I'm Henry.
0: We are thankful that you are spending some time with us today as we delve into leadership and more important, what's the blueprint behind leadership? And joining us today is the CEO of UW Credit Union.
1: Now you almost got nervous. You almost got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I got it right. I'm a member. I got a card in my pocket. Which I'm, you know, I'm not. And I actually just emailed you the other day. I'm like, I need to become a member of UW Credit Union. Is that a true story? It is a true story.
0: And when I travel, actually, it's the card I take with me because for whatever reason, it's the easiest ATM card to have with you when you travel overseas. Oh, good. Glad to hear that. But Paul Cundert, CEO. As we always do, we gamify the bio.
1: Well, I win, you lose.
0: That's a couple notches, though.
1: I've recorded, but prove it. I don't believe that.
0: (laughs) All right. Go ahead, Henry.
1: Kick us off. Start easy here. You got married at 39? Yeah. Wow just crossed
0: five billion dollars in deposits assets assets
2: yep 4. It, that's a
1: loss though right no no no, that's that's no, no. Stuff. no okay
2: um
1: <laughs> so, oh, oh 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 i get this you you want to know this one you used to be a lead singer in a band
2: yeah, yeah.
1: wow right yeah, yeah. well as a teenager yeah burn something or burn something starts to be what was Barn burners it? yeah man henry i'm impressed thank you <laughs> You want to give up now? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, triple membership
0: under your term as CEO.
1: Yes. Oh, you used to work at a dairy farm sometimes in the summer. Yeah, my
2: grandfather's you? dairy farm. I grew up a couple miles away.
0: Went to and graduated from
1: Winona State.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: MBA, St. Thomas? Yeah. CPA? Yes. Four years CPA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my, I just said four years CPA. On the board of Epic. Yeah, for eight years. Yeah, that's, I mean, I saw that, I'm like, who's on, like, who knows the world of Epic? Like, who knows that world, that box? Well, United Way, Vice Chair United Way, I mean, that's, that's a slam dunk.
0: Was the chair of Filene, which is a think tank for credit unions.
1: Yep, correct. Made a decision to work at UW Credit Union when you were in Maui.
2: Yes, on my honeymoon. On your honeymoon. Yeah. Man. Bruh, this is what I do.
1: This is what
0: I do. <laughs> <talk. laughs> huh? All that personal stuff. Check your trash. Be, huh?
2: careful, uh, <laughs> be careful what you say. This
1: guy remembers. <laughs> uh, that's good. I mean, that's good, bro. That's a good list. All right. That was that was good. Impressive background.
2: Impressive. Well, you went a long way back with some of that. Well, I'm impressed because
1: learning your background from a dairy farm, doing that stuff with your grandfather, to being a band, which is totally different worlds but then you got a cpa which is stereotypically i wouldn't think a person that has a cpa going not be in a band lead singer in a band and then you transition from that to credit union work like, like to say keyboardist maybe but not lead singer right but
2: right. well, you're a lead singer right yeah guitar and, and lead singer right. yeah uh but it was a country band, so that probably diminishes me a bit in your <laughs> no, mind. No, no, no. Country's like pop now. I don't know. It I mean, is now. Yeah. I was ahead of my time, yeah. yeah from I used Minnesota. to listen to some Bo
0: when I was a kid. Some Hank <laughs> no. Williams Jr.
1: Who? Bo Don't know who that is. Who's the other person?
0: The same guy. Hank Williams Jr. Oh. Bo I I
1: know Tim McGraw. All right. there you go. I know Tim. So it's fascinating how you transition all those worlds I'm just curious from you, like, can like people do Enneagram tests and all that stuff? Like, how would you define you, who you are as, a, like, your personality from it, singing to CPA? Because to me, there's all different worlds. Where do you work? How would you define yourself?
2: Well, actually, I've had a lot of insight into that. When I Just when I was coming over here to Madison to take the job as CEO, I had signed up a couple months before that to go to this experience called the Center for Creative Leadership. And it was really designed to give leaders insight into themselves and how they impact other people. And they put us through a battery of paper and pencil tests and then had a psychologist meet with you and explain kind of who you are. They also uh, had you in teams and you were working in case studies with other people and they were watching you through the one-way glass and uh, at the end they would you know kind of put it all together and explain what they observed about you but one of the things i remember them saying is that i had a you equal use of right brain left brain thinking Mm -hmm. one being more logical the other being more creative and i don't know what percent of the population does that but i it's one of the things i remembered them saying is you use both sides of your brain equally so that the you know the artist kind of performer side is one side and the cpa logic kind of was the other side Mm -hmm.
0: So if we go back to pre-band, maybe sometime around Grandpa's dairy farm, what did thirteen-year-old Paul foresee for himself in the future? What did you want to be when you were thirteen?
2: Oh, I don't think it was too grand. I mean, I at that point I probably wanted to own an automobile, maybe have a girlfriend one day, <laughs> and be a country singer. And that's pretty grand. Uh, two yeah. of those came true, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But uh, I never. You don't have re- a car
1: huh I, I I owned a car,
2: yeah <laughs> yeah I see I see how this is going to work. <laughs> No, I don't. I do no credit
0: union that can give you a good rate on a car. Yeah, I
2: didn't have any. I didn't have any lofty aspirations. My I don't know, country singer seems pretty. Uh, good. My uh, grandpa had a dairy farm a couple of miles from. Him. I loved the work. Loved working on there. Actually, would have loved and enjoyed staying on the farm, but he said, "Why don't you go to college? And if you still feel that way when you're done, you we can come back and talk about how this would work." But he probably. Foresaw a little bit that once I got exposed to other things, maybe there'd be other opportunities that presented themselves. And farming is hard work. It is. It really is hard work. Is the farm still in the family? Yeah, actually, uh, my mother still owns the farmland. Yeah. It still what, Yeah, just outside of Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. He's that. still competing in the opening. No, that's over. I mean, it's just,
1: that was. Are we competing? That's
0: right. He never stops competing. No. No. just listen to the episode, the champ, champ episode.
1: You, uh, from your perspective, did you know that you wanted to be a leader, like the lead singer? Like, did you know that you wanted to be a leader from that at a young age? That leadership was in your DNA, or was that something I learned? came on later in life.
2: No, I don't think I ever had an awareness of that. I ended up heading off to a state college, Winona State, and my freshman advisor was a member of the accounting faculty. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was interested in business, like the dynamic of business and competing, I guess. So he said, well, accounting is a great way to get into business. So there wasn't much more thinking than that when it went into it. And I ended up with a degree in accounting, went to work for a CPA firm uh, a firm today is called RSM McGladry, and I, I got into that, but I didn't really enjoy the focus on historical, uh, you know, record keeping. Uh, what I liked was the idea of making decisions and trying to strategize in business. So I think I found my way through just discovering that through work. So when I was in college and at Kent
0: State, we started the first student-owned, student-run credit union I was student-by-president, so I was sat on the board. We got a big award nationally from it. So that was kind of my path to understanding the credit union movement and why I'm a credit union member. How did you go from accounting into the credit union movement?
2: You know, in the late 80s, when this was all taking place for me, the economy was really tight. And so, you know, jobs were not abundant, and you went where the opportunities were. I was working in uh, Rochester, Minnesota for the RSM McGladrey office. And being single and young, I did want to gravitate towards a larger metro area, the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. But I, after I had two or three interviews. I'd never got offers there. And so Rochester, being a smaller market, there were more opportunities. And I ended up moving over to the IBM Employees Credit in their audit function. And it was, a, it was a one-person function in a small organization. We had a couple hundred million in assets but we had a great run growing and we ended up being number one in that smaller market for retail household market share. And so by the time I left there, I was president and chief operating officer and we were 1.4 billion in assets. So about 14 years was a significant run of growth there. And I never even at that time had a goal of being a CEO. I just enjoyed working on problems and leading people and the opportunities came along pretty steadily.
1: What was your role before you were CEO?
2: I was a president and chief operating officer, so I CEO. oversaw most all the operations of the organization, branching networks and electronic delivery, card products, ATM, credit cards, most all the operating functions of the business.
1: What's the difference between, for your perspective, I'm sorry, Zach, from being a CEO versus a CEO? What were the different skill sets you had to learn to transition to that CEO role?
2: I think the, uh, the final accountability for results. That was something... It looked easier to me than what it really was when I stepped into it. It's easier to be standing next to the person that's making the final decision. And you know what you would do, and you're, you know, given your input. But I was surprised how it felt when you kind of took on the mantle of, oh, it's me now. If this is is successful or not, people will be able to point uh, to me. So that was probably the thing that was the biggest surprise, how it actually felt to step into that. It's
0: successful. It'll be team credit. Right. If it's not <laughs> right. successful, it'll be your fault. Right. Well,
2: that's the only way to sustain a good team is yeah. you have to be accountable for the for the loss. So are, are
0: you the do you see yourself as the unlikely chief executive? I mean, I'm thinking about this. So you were in a band and you're a guitarist, but you become the lead singer. You're an auditor and then you become president. It doesn't seem that you sought the limelight, but were pushed into it. Uh, Was that a push or a pull?
2: I didn't have a goal for it. I think I could have been, if I had, if a different opportunity had come along, I think I could have been happy without being a CEO. I know there are people that I think just are naturally wired for that leadership role, and you can't, they, they couldn't have been anything else, you know. I don't feel like that is me necessarily. I think I would have, I could have been fine. I don't necessarily like the visible aspect of being the CEO, especially as the organization's gotten larger, and there are things like this that come along with the position. It's not, I'd be just as happy being somebody that does their work and doesn't necessarily have- I think it's an
0: extension of your right brain, left brain thing though. I mean, I think that makes you an authentic, natural leader that it's, you're not chasing it, but it comes to you. I think it's an interesting thread to pull.
1: Would you call yourself a servant leadership? How would you decide your leadership style?
2: Yeah, I would say that might be a way to fit it. I think I've been successful- for 20 years now in this role by helping build teams and helping define reality. I mean, really pursuing honest, objective view of how we're doing, where we could do better, and where things are going. I think that uh, in this position, being able to spend time looking around the corner is hugely important. We're seeing that play out in some of the financial news now, where there were obviously some financial institutions that were not looking around the corner and enjoying their success right now too much.
0: Well, speaking of leadership, I mean, I think one of the things nationally within the credit union movement, but also you're on, you were on C-SPAN, you testified in front of Congress, is the elimination or reduction of overdraft fees. That's something that I think we've seen you be a national leader on and something we're proud of, something that was, came out of a Madison model, right? It's yeah. the UW credit union. And as somebody who, and I sent you a note when you announced it, as somebody, you know, and part of this podcast is some vulnerability too, as leaders, that I told you that as a, you know, as a young professional owning my own company, raising three kids and being in my 20s, that like overdraft fees almost broke me. I mean, it was, you make one mistake and the domino effect of that is it becomes, I, mean, I think about some of the most stressful moments in my life and it was probably had bank fees associated somewhere along the line because the domino effect that it had on my account. Where did that leadership come from? Why did you risk millions of dollars in your own organization to take a national stance?
2: I think we became aware over time through reading and talking to folks that have been impacted by those fees and understood the burden they were placing on people and they were preventing people from accumulating wealth, preventing people from completing education. Financial hardships was number one reason that students don't complete a degree path, and so young people trying to pursue their dreams and the opportunity. Just uh, there were a lot of there was enough research out there to show the impact of those fees. When we had seen it, when we looked at it in our organization, well, suddenly I just it became almost an imperative to do something about it. So. Back in 2010, the Federal Reserve was trying to accommodate consumer groups that were saying these fees are abusive and they're exploitative, and uh, they were changing the regulations at that time to make it so that consumers had to proactively opt in to pay debit card overdraft fees, something the bank could prevent easily. At least they could just say, we're not going to charge you more than one a day, no matter how many times you swipe your card. And there was a little bit of a moral imperative then because we had to choose whether we were going to pursue asking people to opt in or say, no, we're not, that's, it's not anything someone should do, so we're not even going to ask. And so that decision back in 2010 was the first step. And we gave up a lot of income then compared to what others have. And we're a big checking account shop. We have 240,000 checking members. So I think there's only two other credit unions in the Midwest that approach those levels. And so it's a big number for us when you multiply it out. But we felt good about that. We felt um, that we had done something positive and we talked about it, but we saw very few institutions following us. I was surprised by that because uh, the banking business is so competitive in most ways. And I, I, as I thought about that over the years, I thought there's a curiosity there. Why don't consumers demand different treatment and why don't other institutions match that. Because as soon as somebody changes anything about mortgage lending or home equity lending or investment wealth management, others say, hey, we have to do that too and we've got to compete on that. But I think capitalism is such a powerful force for raising people up. I mean, it's created, lifted so many people out of poverty. But on the margins of it where people don't have the ability to negotiate, and one of those needs is credit. You need credit and you need it badly you know, you're going to pay what you need to meet that need. Whether it's replacing a tire on your car so you can keep your job, whether it's getting a prescription for your kid that needs medicine, you're going, to, you're going to swipe the card or write the check and know, well, it might bounce, but the bank will cover it. So it's not that there's not a need for credit, but what should be the cost of it? Well, you know, the margins being made in that business are just outrageous, really. You know, it's interesting, payday lending has such a bad reputation but actually, a lot of payday loans are less expensive for the consumer than bank overdraft fees. And when you look at it as a percentage percentage of interest rate and so forth, so we felt about strongly about that, and then we had eliminated a lot of the overdrafts, but we you still could incur one by writing a check that didn't clear. And we were charging twenty eight dollars for that, no more than one fee a day. But then in the in twenty twenty one, we reduced that to five dollars. And we did that after looking again at the costs associated with it, how many we don't collect, and the actual business costs of providing the service. So, yeah, we think it's something that needs to be talked about. We're trying to be a leader in it. We think it's good for business. I think we would do it even if we had to work harder. It didn't help. But, you know, we're a lot of people recognize the value of that, and we're acquiring more customers. I think what you just mentioned is a good example. People always think, or they tend to think about people that, Need short term credit like that is always being the same people. It's not always the same people. In your case, you just told us it's this happened to you at this period in your life. You've obviously gone off, gone on to be a very good relationship for your financial firm, looking at the, you know, the probably what you save and what you've borrowed over the time. So we think that, hey, it's where there's a lot of people that would appreciate being treated that way. And we're seeing it in our business. Last year, we welcomed just under 18,000 new checking members, which is a record for us. And partly that's because we're not closing as many accounts. And you know people are staying with us because they're, they're receiving an equitable experience.
1: I just thought to your board that, okay, we're gonna cut these overdraft fees I'm assuming, like Zach said, I'm assuming I think it's like $5 million, right? Well,
2: if you look at the number, we, we collect about $2.50 in overdraft fees per year in checking accounts, and the bank average right now is $60 a year. So that'd be about $14 million if you looked at last okay. year. So
1: Zach and I are on your board. Yeah. And if, God forbid if we were, I mean, it'd be terrible for you if we were both on your board. <laughs> but if we're on your board, you come in and say, I want to create this new policy that's going to cost us. 14 million dollars. The economy, went you know where the economy's going, COVID, all these all these things are going on. But yep, I'm gonna do the right thing when you know whatever that means, whoever it is. But from a business perspective, I say, Paul, wait a minute. You're gonna cut 14 million dollars. What was your pitch to them to make them say, yeah, this is the right business decision for us to do?
2: Right. Well, partly it was because it wasn't a $14 million ask all at once. Back in 2010. It was, given the size we were and the first steps we took, it was only a couple million dollars a year. So, in a way, as we grew, we grew not dependent on that income. And everybody comes out with a budget every year, and you figure out what do you need to maintain a healthy bottom line or a sustainable bottom line. And for us, we having having said no to that income, every year we've come out with a plan that said, how are we going to do it without that money? And so we did it in increments over time. The last move we made was maybe an additional $5 million a year, $4 million a year. The point is, yeah, if we had waited till now, if we had never done anything, it's a bigger thing to digest. But because we worked at it over time, one of the things that we've demonstrated to the board through that is that we've become more efficient. Without that income, you have to find a way to become more efficient. And we compare... Our operating expenses per household to similar size institutions, we're at the 90th percentile of operating efficiency. And so that happened out of necessity, really, over time. So I think you have a good point. We worked at it. We've worked at it over for more than a decade.
0: Two things that I love about that case study is, one, that you use data to prove that you could do something equitable, right? That you looked at the reaction of a board would be the upside of that could be $14 million to the downside could be $14 million, depending on glass half full, glass half empty. You use data and said, look, this is what we're really collecting. This is what's really at risk. These are who those bank, these are who those members are. So you use data to prove it. The other thing is you use the word equitable, which is not something we hear in banking very often. You, and I've, I think it was in your testimony in Congress, you talked about equitable banking. I forget exactly where I heard it. What does that term mean to you? It's not something I've heard before, but what does equitable banking mean?
2: It it just to me means fairness, that you, on the margins of the competition, you don't take advantage of the pricing position of folks. And I know, I don't think, I think a lot of people that run financial institutions, they say the market sets the price. And I noticed that, hey, these banks in my area charge $35 for overdrafts and they cap them at five a day. And so that's the market. So I'm just adopting the market. The problem with that is I think if you really would look at the data, you would say, wow, I make more money on that product than any other product I have. I wonder why that is. Well, the question is, it may be that the person isn't negotiating. They have a desperate need for credit. I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is in the experience a lot of people like me came up with, is if nobody's complaining to me, then it must be okay. We don't get any complaints about it. Well, it's to kind of be ignorant of the experience of folks that have come to expect to be treated this way. And they're, the most time-compressed people in society are poor people. They have no time, because being poor is a very demanding business. And so complaining writing a letter to the CEO of a bank or credit union to complain when you don't life has led you to believe it's not going to be acknowledged or even factored in and you have other things to do so i think that's i think it's just the conditions that have led people not to examine that but once you're aware of it i don't see how you ignore it. was it
1: the right business decision like now that you know after a couple of years in was it the right
2: decision I think so and I think not only because we're enjoying the highest customer satisfaction we've ever had but it's you know it's a war for talent today and if you want to be an organization that wants to grow your workforce and have a highly engaged team that's willing to give you discretionary effort in their work you better figure out how to communicate the purpose and the mission of that organization and I think for our employees to be, you know, in a call center answering phone calls and to not be explaining why you owe us $150 for the three debit card transactions you did yesterday. And no, I can't refund those. I refunded one for you a year ago. I mean, that's the life of a lot of folks that are on the front lines in financial services. And so our. To, I think there is business value because our team are not being asked to do that. They're not being asked to to have conversations that might be at conflict with their own values and have them go home feeling drained rather than energized by the people they got to help during that day
0: you're a white man from Rochester Minnesota you've experienced as largely midwest where does this thinking come from i mean where does where does where, what part of your life gave you this insight into the challenges of others
2: that's a good question. I, that is my experience. It's, I don't pretend it's otherwise. Uh, I think my parents, I was a middle child. My parents, I mean, I had a sense of, I had a cute sense of fairness because I, you know, the little brother got all, spoiled everything and the older brother was, you know, got all the praise and stuff. So the middle brother's, the middle son, the child is always the one concerned about equity and fairness. But my parents, they kind of charged us with two dynamics. One, letting us know that no one is better than you and then at the other hand, uh, a healthy dose of self-doubt. You're not any better than anyone. <laughs> and so they kind of set up a dynamic that had us feeling lucky when we had success and being aware of circumstances besides your own efforts that led to success. But that was kind of a foundation. But for me, it's, it's been all about the people I've met here in the community and what I've learned from them. And then in some cases, the books, they said, you should read this. And uh, that experience for me, you know, for our organization about 2015, our head of HR said to me, hey, I've been looking, reading all this stuff in the HR world, and we're going to need to be a better organization with regard to equity, diversity, and inclusion, or we're not going to be successful in the decades to come. The demographics are changing. The marketplace is changing. And so the first conversations I remember about it in my organization were just straight-up business dialogue. (laughs) Like, do you want to stay in business? Do we want to be relevant? Then we better figure out how to be an organization that can be inclusive, welcoming, and really succeed in a world like that. And so that started a journey for us as an organization. And we came into the orbit of folks, consultants and other folks that helped us walk in other people's shoes and see what other people's experience has been. My uh, connection with United Way has been hugely important in that journey, too. I'm on the board equity committee, and so we've, that part of the organization, uh, trying to make sure that the organization in raising funds and applying them for improvement in the community is, it has equity infused in all those processes. So that's been a huge uh, opportunity for me, too, to meet folks. One of the things that came out of that, too, is in the summer of 2020, there was a lot of social unrest and uh, across the nation, even here in Madison, and... You know, I got a call from Rene Mo, the president of United Way, saying, would you be interested in meeting with some other CEOs and one of the black leaders here in town, just to kind of talk about what's happening and why it's happening. And I had an acute interest in that. We had two branches that were temporarily closed because vandalism and the spillover from what protests became violent in the overnight hours. And so, yeah, I had an interest in knowing about that. And, and so um, that was another experience where I would say i met folks that could give me a deeper understanding about it.
1: What I love about that story, well, a lot of things I love about it, but what I really love about it is how you came from a business perspective. This is something we have to do if we want to be competitive. We want to have talent, the demographics are changing. I think sometimes we talk about D&I work. We talk about for what's the right thing to do and it's the feeling of it. And But really, it's about innovation. It's about business. A business case to me of if you want to be competitive, if you want to compete in the world that's coming or that here, you have, to, you have to be diverse in all meanings if you want to be competitive. So I love that you came in from that perspective. How do you instill that in your family?
2: Well, we should have my wife, Kim, sitting here because she's contributed more to the success of our family or the, the, the leadership of it as much as I have. I think just talking and verbalizing what's going on. So you're, I mean, kids are amazing sponges to, to they don't act like they're listening. They, they're good at acting like they don't care. So sometimes it's hard to keep on, but just verbalizing what's going on and why it's going on, and same thing my parents did, trying to help my kids understand that, it's that fairness is a moral principle. For our family, it comes from faith, too. And so lots of opportunities to talk about that, but then to help them understand what the walk looks like for folks that have had a different experience than they have. You know one of the things in the summer of 2020 my oldest kid it was his birthday and we said what do you want to do for your birthday and he said I don't know but I want to I want to march down State Street in support of the Black Lives Matter you know in some ways our kids lead us you know this is the first time I'd ever done anything like that what's next on the journey Oh, well, that's a good question for us we're the journey is to move beyond anecdotes and sharing of experience and incorporate measurement in the business so that we're uh, looking at data and facts. We started this journey kind of ourselves with as outside consultants, and then 2019 hired a full-time person to help us lead not only our DEI work in that journey, but to bring our community engagement into that as well. Her name's Sheila Milton. She's on our senior management team and leads that work but the reason we end, we ended up starting on our own because i didn't want this to be something we hired someone to do and everybody saw this as their work and not their work so we really started with managers having to increase their toolkit and, uh, and start leading with the skills needed to accomplish what we're talking about but then we got to the point where it's like what's the next step well the next step is really hard and that's like the accountability of saying, well, we have these goals, but actually, are we making progress towards them? And finding places in the organization those moments of truth that either enable progress and success or don't. So for us right now, we've spent the last 12 months putting in data dashboards and building the information systems we needed to track these and things like, are promotion rates the same are equitable across the organization? Are our turnover rates after two years equitable and the same? So in other words, you could be successful attracting a diverse workforce, but can you retain them? That would speak to different issues, because you have to not only be able to recruit people, you have to be able to provide the environment where they want to be, where they see that their work is being rewarded, and they're experiencing what you said the organization was. So we're putting, I think we've come up with seven measures that we think are critical. uh, We've developed the the baseline measures for that now we're setting the targets that's where the real work will come because like any business metric you know you discover where you're successful and you figure out where you're not and you do that through measurement so that's what's next for us
1: i want to kind of switch topics to music we usually ask people who are the top five rappers hip-hop artists but I'm not sure if we should ask you that question, Paul. <laughs> Take a shot at it, right? Like or, or just one, like or your top, top five country artists.
2: You know, people like yeah. Willie Nelson, okay. Ray Price, Fair and Young, the I mean the the old school people that traveled in station wagons, not buses. But I actually I have kind of an eclectic sense of music, but I like ballads. I like more melodious. So hip hop is hip hop has got a lot of energy, but it's not been a genre that I've spent a lot of time in. I can tell you my Taylor Swift playlist or anybody that has that pop orientation, but Zach loves Taylor Swift. That's his final favorite artist. He's shaking his I mean, head. I'm not no. gonna say
0: anything because if you say anything, get those if one way it like makes me a Taylor Swift supporter and the other way all the Swifties will like come and like burn my house to the ground. So I just nod and you just don't know which way I'm nodding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have to we have, we need something from him. So we're gonna say top pop. Artists. We're gonna
2: say country what, artists. What's your, what's your favorite contemporary artist? I listen to a lot of Christian contemporary stuff too, but I don't even know the artist's names.
1: So when you closed out your set singing, what was
2: the cover song that you closed it out? Close out with a polka. Remember, this is rural Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, something that had that really, you could dance to. and Zach exactly. loves poker. He, he loves poker.
0: You love polka. <laughs> we? like, I'm now the Swifty. I love polka. like
1: I mean, polka, remember you told me the polka thing? You showed me the thing you did. No, I don't remember. This no? thing.
2: Right. No. Yeah. Right.
1: Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> what, did you actually sung a polka song? Oh,
2: sure. Yeah. Uh, roll
0: Out the Barrels. you say Roll Out the Barrels? Yeah. You know
1: that song. I don't think I do. I mean, if it I remember, maybe. It
0: was in an ad that they, <laughs> in the Wisconsin ad. That was that song? <laughs> Galugamite or whatever it was. <laughs> I
1: have heard it.
0: This is one black guy and a bunch yeah, of white. The, yeah, the one got the
1: beard yeah, one guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. So, big takeaways for me. I love that your parents instilled in you the sense of fairness, but almost a bit of it's okay to have doubt about, you know, about who you are. And so there's a way to challenge yourself. Cause we all think we all deal with this imposter syndrome, especially as you get higher up in leadership yeah. and be able to un- understand how to own that and navigate it. I think is some, it's something that's wisdom imparted by your parents that I think is a big foundation of who you are. I, to me, is if I go all the way back, I think that's a pretty big lesson for me in this conversation.
1: And I loved how you really talked about how you understand people who might be poor and how they have to work harder. And sometimes I think people think they're poor, so they're lazy, which we know is not true. No. And here you articulate that was powerful for me.
0: I mean, what was it? it was the most time compressed people are poor people. It's just, it's amazingly insightful. I love you talking about accountability, what measured, what's, what gets measured gets done. But You see the business as a way to improve people's life, but- you talked about it from not just the c- customer's perspective, but also from the employee's perspective. I thought insightful. Of, as you were saying it, I was thinking about the times where I had to call the call center and say, how can you help me? And the person on the end of the line never felt great about saying, you know, sorry. Like w- literally what you said, I we gave you a freebie a year ago. So no, you can't have another one. And it's like, right, but I can't pay my bills if you take... One hundred and eighty dollars on top of what I owe. Okay. I explained to you why it happened, and they couldn't have felt good about that, right? And so to be thinking about the role of equitable banking, not just for what you called, you know, on the margins, but actually thinking about the people who are working every day that are the foundation of your business, okay. I think it's powerful.
1: And how you really talked about how diversity was the future, and how you built a business around that to me was powerful. Also that because demographics are shifting, you recognize that's a business opportunity for you, but you had to recognize your company had to be ready for that growth. I love that part of it. The
0: last one for me, I mean, you started off by talking about the assessment that said you use both spheres of your brain, but you use the word curiosity multiple times during the interview, and I think that's, I think one of the most important pieces of leadership, and I think maybe one of the foundations of your leadership is, being willing to pull that thread and to ask what if or why not. It's a powerful, it's risky when you're the chief executive, but I think it's the underpinning of all successful organizations and leaders.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great conversation.
0: You. We
2: appreciate you. Enjoyed this. Thank you.
0: All right, well, uh, hit that subscribe. I don't know what other versions of that they have in front of you. If there's something in there that says, I like Henry and Zach, or if I just like Zach, that one's okay too. Just go ahead and hit that. Make sure you follow us on social media. We appreciate the increasing number of people that are listening to the podcast. And if you have ideas and thoughts or feedback, certainly hit us up. We want to make sure that you're engaged and getting what you need as well. So thanks for joining us.
1: Shout out to all Taylor Swift fans and polka dancers out there. Zach loves you. All love. All love.